Right now, you're listening to a podcast. But I'm also betting you're doing something else. Maybe folding the laundry, you're on your commute, maybe you're out on a run. So are you really listening? And how much of this are you really retaining? When was the last time you actually sat down and did only one thing solely for the benefit of your own well-being? Today we're talking about practicing mindfulness because that's the key to getting you there. This is the WorkWell podcast series. Hi, I'm Jen Fisher, well-being leader for Deloitte, and I'm so pleased to be here with you today to talk all things well-being. When I'm feeling a strong emotion, I use it to self-regulate or down-regulate the emotion, to create a little space and actually allow the emotion to complete its sine wave, if you will. Every emotion has a curve. They last about 90 seconds, but we feed it with thoughts and we get all worked up and jacked up and it could last for a day or two. But by creating a little space and just allowing it to be here, then the emotion doesn't control or affect my behavior. I'm here with Lori Cameron. She's an author, speaker, and consultant on mindfulness. Lori, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jen. It's great to be here. Let's start out with the basics. What is mindfulness and what is meditation? What's the difference? Oh, I love that you started with that question because they're so often used synonymously. Right. Um, Mindfulness is simply paying attention on purpose in the present moment with a certain kind of filter, a certain attitude, and that is um, paying attention with openness, curiosity, and compassion. So mindfulness is a way of being. And we develop that with mental exercises, um, whether they're formal or whether they're micro practices, and those we can think of as meditation. So meditation is a set of exercises that we do to develop the skills and cultivate a capacity to be mindful, to be aware, to know what's happening when it's happening. So it's like going to the gym, we exercise our muscles, meditating, we are exercising our mind in order to be able to be mindful. Yeah, beautiful. So um, I love that metaphor of going to the gym. And, um, And while we say mind in mindful, it's very much an embodied capacity. So we're exercising our mind and body, our nervous system, the, the, our ability to tune into emotions, just tracking what's happening and how we're standing and how we're moving into a room. So we're training an, a kind of an embodied way of being in the gym, in the so, mind-body gym. So is there, a, so then you're basically saying that you can be mindful in everything that you do and every activity throughout the day, but I assume there's probably things that we want to make sure that we're more mindful yeah. You know, when we're with others, when we're, you know, doing something that's important and other things, maybe like folding the laundry where we necessarily don't have to be so mindful unless we want to get the perfect unless fold in our Marie shirt. Unless we're Marie Kondo. <laughs> <laughs> She's mindful folding the laundry. Yes. Um, yeah. So I think what's really cool is that you can be mindful doing anything, okay. just like you said. And, um, and there are certain times when the stakes are higher than others. So when I'm listening to my client explain what's keeping her up at night, or when I'm listening to my daughter who's in high school come in and tell me about a difficult day, 
I want to be there. And um, what mindfulness helps me do is cultivate something called meta-awareness. It helps me see where my attention is. So when I'm in those moments that count, when I'm, when I'm doing something creative, um, creating a PowerPoint slide for one of our programs we do together or um, in, a, in a creative brainstorming session, I can notice when my mind wanders or when I'm lost in thought and bring it back. So how is that different than just saying I'm going to focus? So um, the thing is, we can aspire to a lot of things, to attend to things, to focus, um, to be here now, as the certain folks like to call it. But the challenge is, uh, that's not our biology. So we're wired to, um, to have our attention not focus. We're actually designed to be unfocused. Why is that? Because we're not built to be happy or to be in a state of well-being necessarily. We're actually built for survival. Mm. And our minds are designed to constantly scan the environment, to look left and right, to um, detect threats. And then once we see those threats, we hang on to them and we ruminate and we repeat them and go over and over in our head with this negative or difficult thing that we perceive is happening, might not even be real. But we're designed for survival, so it's very hard to focus. And the good news is, the mind-blowing news, I think, is that we now know that whatever experience we repeatedly give our brain will change the structure and function of our brain. So what that means simply is that I can do certain deliberate, specific, tested-in-the-lab exercises for my brain, and I build up the part of my brain that's responsible for focusing. And that offsets that, that evolutionary biology. So that's where meditation comes in. Yes. So talk to me a little bit about what the practice of meditation looks like, feels like. Um, you know, I often say God. that I'm a horrible meditator. I think probably... Most people feel like they're horrible meditators because I can't turn off my brain. But the point is yeah. not to turn off your brain, right? Um, and so I think there's a lot of misconceptions out there as to what a practice of meditation is or should be, or perhaps we're aspiring to be the perfect meditator when there maybe isn't a perfect meditation. It's different for everybody. I, I love how you put that, Jen. And, and so many people, when they find out what I do for a living, they say, oh my gosh, you don't know what it's like in here. My, my thoughts are racing. I'm not cut out for this. You know, put me on a exercise bike. I can do that. But you don't know that this mind is different. And that's sort of the, the fallacy of uniqueness. You know, we, we all have racing minds. And um, what I tell people, and they feel so much relief, that we're not trying to empty the mind or clear the mind of thinking. That's a that's just bad press on the meditation mm -hmm. circuit. We're trying to actually just see what's going on in there. We're just cultivating a capacity to see our thoughts and see our emotions as if we're standing on the bank of a river and we're watching them go down the river. That's really what meditation is. It's not clearing the mind. So you asked about, you know, what does it look like? What does it feel like? One of the foundational basic core meditations in the in the world of mindfulness is focused attention training. And I also call that mindful breathing. Um, and that is, and you talked about focus earlier. So this is the gym equipment that we're talking about mm -hmm. going to in the mm -hmm. morning. 
And here we just, we just need an object of attention. And it can be anything. It could be this, this mic I'm speaking into. Um, it could be a candle you might see in a, in a glowy golden magazine. Um, but we use the breath. And we use the breath because it's always with us. And it has the side benefit of relaxing and calming mm-hmm. the nervous system. Right. So we use the breath as an object of attention, bring our attention to the breath in a, just a very deliberate but gentle, easy way, and focus on the inhale and the exhale. And then inevitably, for every person on the planet, our mind wanders. And then a thought comes in. What am I going to have for lunch? Oh, I forgot to send that email. Oh no, I, you know, I've got a big presentation tomorrow and then anxiety hits. So it's normal that a thought comes in. And what we do with mindfulness meditation is simply notice that thought, allow it to be there, but don't start working it and just bring attention back to the breath. So we're, and we do that again and again and again. And that's the, every time we begin again and, and do it again, we're, we're doing a rep at the gym with the prefrontal cortex. So what's the minimum amount of time that I have to do that for in order to get a benefit from it? (laughs) I love that question. I always get that. I get that everywhere. But the first time I got it, he said, what's, you know, what's the minimum effective dose? And I said, well, you know, just one breath will have a lot of benefit. But if you can do 10 minutes a day, you'll really start to see some changes. But the thing that I want to emphasize is you, you asked, what does it feel like? And I, I wanted to, I love that question, Jenna, and I want to talk about that because I think it feels different between minute one and minute five and minute 10. And um, for a lot of folks, the first minute that they sit down, their very busy, overactive, quite full mind feels like the inside of a popcorn machine. Or the other thing that happens is emotions that we've repressed Maybe we got a zinger of an email and then we've kind of felt that come up in the body and we stuffed it down. Emotions kind of come up. So it's not about feeling like you're sitting on top of a mountain, you know, in a state of bliss. It might be that when you start meditating, it feels kind of wild, like a wild ride. And that's okay because we're meeting, we're cultivating a capacity for compassion and we start with ourselves. So we, we, we just allow this to be here like, wow, wow, check out my mind today and just meet that with kindness. You really have a lot going on. But, but that's um, compassion and kindness towards ourself is difficult. Oh, it's I mean, I really think, hard. That's yeah. the, that's the black diamonds. Yeah. And I, I'll start people on the, on the bunny slopes of kindness towards others. But that's why we can, we can pull that into our mindful breathing training. Mm-hmm. So we're not only focusing attention, exercising our skill of attention, but we can also exercise our self-compassion. So it can feel a little rocky in the first minute or two. And that's why I encourage people to give it five minutes or seven minutes because then things start to settle. It's like when you shake a snow globe and you set it down and then at first everything's flipping all around, but then ever so slowly the snowflakes start to fall a little bit and settle and then you can see clearly. And that's what we're cultivating with mindfulness is the ability to see clearly. And so how does that type of training, um, how will that benefit me in my day-to-day ability to 
be present, to be engaged, to not react emotionally? I mean, does it give me the ability to control my reactions or is it the ability to pause? Like, what is it that we're training to do? Um, A couple of things. So what I love is the capacity to shift my state on demand. So if I notice that, that I'm experiencing a really strong emotion or for me, I have a tendency to feel overwhelmed. So I use the breath, like do a mini mindful breathing meditation to just stop and allow things to settle and ask myself what's important right now. So I use it for focus. Um, When I'm feeling a strong emotion, I use it to self-regulate or down-regulate the emotion to create a little space and actually allow the emotion to complete its sine wave, if you will. Every emotion has a curve. Mm -hmm. They last about 90 seconds, but we feed it with thoughts and we get all worked up and jacked up and it could last for a day or two. But by creating a little space and just allowing it to be here, then the emotion doesn't control or affect my behavior. I Mm kind of create some distance. Another one that we do is journaling. Mm -hmm. And we do many different types of journaling, but one that we do is journaling for self-awareness, for self-discovery. And uh, just this week, right after we did a journaling practice, followed by a three-breath reset, like a little one-two, he came up at the break and thanked me so much for that practice. His words were, thank you for forcing me to journal, (laughs) which made me kind of laugh a little bit because I wanted to say, I didn't force you. (laughs) But he said, thank you for forcing me to journal because I have a situation that's really disturbing me. I I haven't been able to sleep. I'm distracted in all my meetings. I'm, I'm not much fun to be around. And this has been going on for more than a week. And I just journaled about the situation. And all of a sudden, I saw it differently. I was out of the experience and I was writing about it and then I could read that. And then I said, oh, that's not really that bad. I can handle that. This is gonna be okay. And I have in his, I could feel his whole body. He said, I had so much relief. And then we did the, the three breaths reset, which is another practice of three breaths. And he said, Laurie, that, those breaths were the first fresh, easy breath I've had of the day. When we did mindful breathing earlier today, I couldn't even do it because my mind was so full of this difficult situation. So the journaling actually helped him um, pay attention to what's going on in a different way than mindful breathing. Hmm. So there's kind of different things we can And how much time did that take, the journaling plus the three breaths? Um, We had four... Uh, journaling prompts and I gave them about two and a half minutes each so that was about eight minutes then he read over what he wrote so let's just say generously 10 minutes and then the three breaths reset was about a minute okay so so 10 10 12 minutes in your day to have that kind of impact on yeah that makes me (laughs) you know you your relationship, I mean, kind of every aspect of your life. And, you know, the thing that, I mean, I just feel really moved just hearing you say that because I saw this guy's face. Like, I knew he just spent the last week in agony, you know, really suffering. And when we're in that state of um, contraction and tension and rumination and self-blame or maybe blaming someone else, who knows, 
um, we're not in an optimal state of right. creativity and resourcefulness. Right. So he shifted his state in 12 minutes. It's, I mean, it, it, I think the burning question is, why aren't we all doing this? I, know. <laughs> I, I think that is the burning question. So what happens when you get up in the morning and you set your intentions for that day and the day goes completely <laughs> in another direction? Oh, that's real life. <laughs> so that's where meditation helps, right? Yeah. <laughs> so one of the things that, that I um, share, and uh, we, we, we teach it in Mindful Leader, and I seem to use it every day, is, is this mindset of allowing and accepting because we often have, you know, the best laid plans, right? Mm -hmm. We we have a blueprint for what we think the day will look like and it goes sideways or something happens. And when we can cultivate using our new skills, our muscles of awareness to not be swept up by the surprise, but actually to see it. It's like you're not in the traffic jam, you're a heli a traffic helicopter looking at the traffic jam. And you the mantra that I teach in our classes is okay, so it's like this, or all right, so this is here. Mm -hmm. So using this phrase, and I'll say that like, okay, so this is here, this yeah. is happening. So when your flight's delayed or yeah. canceled. Yes, or... That's, a, that's a great one. <laughs> and I'll say, this is here. Another practice that is probably my number one most used practice in my life, and the number one practice I almost always teach is a self-compassion practice. And that's from the research of Dr. Kristen Neff and Christopher Germer. Mm -hmm. And uh, Harvard Business Review just did a huge spread on self-compassion in October. Um, because the science is, is, is unrefutable. That if we can acknowledge a difficult moment, that's step one of this three-step process. Step one is mindfulness. And we acknowledge that this is hard. Oh, I, my flight just got canceled. And... I was heading to a very important meeting. Or I'm not going to make it. Or I was heading home, <laughs> even more important. Yeah. And step two is common humanity. And that is where we actually take a breath. And in our mind, we say, we connect to all the other human beings that have experienced this very same thing. So whether it's a missed flight or it's a diagnosis of a difficult illness, we stop and say, oh, I'm not the only one that's not going to get home tonight or that missed a flight or that didn't show up to a client for an important meeting. And then that, that common humanity, that acknowledgement that this is part of being human is it shows really profound effects in the, in the research. So we do that instead of blaming ourselves. Yes. We, we switch from judgment or self judgment mm -hmm. or blaming the airlines to <laughs> um, acknowledging that this is part of being human. Yeah. And then the third step uh, is the step of self-kindness, self-compassion. And that is where we actually take my hand and put it on my chest when I do this and say, it's okay, sweetheart. Or you could say, um, uh, this is hard. This is a really difficult thing. And what do you need right now? So why is self-compassion so hard for us? You know, there's, there's, that's been studied quite a bit. And, you know, there's, there's a belief that that's deep in us. It's not conscious, but I think a lot of us believe that if I meet failure or a setback, or if I say something that hurts someone, or I turn in a project or do it, you know, I miss a deadline or it's over budget, 
and I meet that moment with kindness, I'm going to do it again, or I'm not going to get better, or I'm not going to grow. Hmm. So we, we have this internal inner critic, this really harsh voice, I think, to protect us, to keep us safe. I think our inner critic means well. You know, it really wants to keep us out of trouble. So it's like, oh man, I can't believe it. You dropped the bomb, you, you dropped the ball. And, and it's really not helping us because mm -hmm. what we're seeing in the research is that the inner critic actually um, puts us in a state of low motivation. And um, we don't, we're less likely to take risk. We're less likely to take on that big project. It goes or, back to survival mode. Yeah. Yeah. So self-compassion actually shifts us out of that. And one of the things we, we were doing this week is uh, we tried that we, we practiced this in the moment on the fly three step practice. And then we also practiced um, a, a, a wonderful tool um, called letter from a mentor. And we write a letter to ourselves and some people do it um, from a mentor. Other people might do it from a high school teacher or a good friend. And we write that, so it's a journaling exercise. This one, Jen, takes four minutes. And you write a letter to, to have the voice of that person give you advice for a difficult situation you're in. And when we did that one, and then we discussed, had a rich discussion on um, which one of these was most effective for you. Mm -hmm. And for a lot of people in the room, they love the on-the-fly three steps. And for other people, they find that letter a much easier way to offer it's themselves a, it's a, compassion. It's, a, it's someone else's voice. Yes. <laughs> and it's and, and they believe that that other person yeah. wishes them well and right. that they're wise. And you but know, it's so not really another person. It's then. really yourself, which yeah. is the, kind so. of the cool magic. It's a, it's a side door in. Yeah. So I don't know if this is actually self-compassion or not, but when I get in those moments, I always say to myself, tell the negative committee in your head to sit down and shut up. <laughs> See, you know, it's so, I like, so, I like the I don't negative committee. I don't know if that's self-compassion or if that's more on the negative side, but it tends to work for me. Um, well, that is a, I think it's a cool strategy. I, yeah. I would love even you adding to that. So that's a, that's sort of the mindfulness piece. Yeah. Like I hear you committee, yeah. you're pretty loud with your megaphones yeah. over there. So you can have a seat. I'm not going to listen. Yet. Um, yeah. One thing I wrote in the book is, um, you know, some people say silence the inner critic, um, I like the phrase befriend the inner, mm. inner critic um, because it's not going to be silent. I don't think those voices ever really go away. I think what we can do is befriend them. So maybe experiment next time with, hey, committee, I see you guys. You know, I put a sofa in the corner of the room for you. Go over there, have some tea, but I'm, I'm getting down to work right Should now. Should I tell the negative committee to go meditate perhaps? Yeah, go <laughs> tell them to meditate. And then, and then add to that just a... Uh, a moment of kindness for yourself. Like, all right, Jen, you've got this. What is, what does evening mindfulness look like in a mindful day? Um, so I think it starts with how we come through the door. I've, I've talked to so many people in a variety of work. And this can be a that, literal door or a virtual door. It's when yeah, you're kind of turning off that from work and, and transitioning into beautiful life yeah. you know we say kids have trouble with transition but I think we do too because mm -hmm. that negativity bias that we have in the brain um, negative stuff sticks sticks like 
Velcro and the positive stuff rolls off. So we walk in the door, some of us, you can envision almost like post-it notes all over us of all the difficult rough moments or all the to-dos or that lingering, challenging conversation with our, with our boss. And we carry that in to this sanctuary that um, for me is really important. So that the, the evening section in, in my book talks about that transition and then even goes into cultivating with intention and purpose an environment that nourishes you from your food to the to art to the layout of your furniture to the colors to eliminating clutter that that your home life isn't just a place to you know get all your stuff done and crash (laughs) right but to actually like look forward to that so the transition I think is rough and a lot of people bring that in and then they see a loved one and vent Mm-hmm. And then that all that negativity and all that energy is now offload, not offloaded or shared or, or amplified onto someone else. So even at the door, uh, Norman Fisher, who's a wonderful uh, Zen Of uh, no leader, relation to me, unfortunately. Of no relation. I don't know. I think there might be some connection. Um, he talks about, you know, a uh, hands-on chair or a doorknob practice of, you know, as I... Because we, we tell the brain, you know, as I put my key in the door, as I touch the doorknob, I'm gonna, that's going to cue me to take a few mindful breaths, mm. to just allow the day to settle. Some of my clients do that in the I driveway, that. people that drive. Yeah, I love that. I love that in the driveway because yeah. I, I like sitting in my car. And um, it's weird, I know, because I don't have a long commute normally. <laughs> but, but just sitting in the car and just breathing a little bit, just allowing the day to settle and then taking a few breaths and then going into my house mm-hmm. and seeing my teenager or my husband, and I'm different. Yeah. And I'm, I want to show up as this fresh, loving person. But if I don't consciously shift, sometimes I come in as a stressed out, you know, overwhelmed person. Right. And I, I know that I need to make that shift. So that's one, one thing about evening. We love to drink tea together. So um, I've, I've spent the last 20 years... Uh, studying mindfulness with Thich Nhat Hanh, the Zen, Zen uh, Buddhist teacher from Vietnam, and, uh, and living in, in monasteries with the nuns and monks in the Europe and in, in Europe and the U.S. And I learned a lot from them. And one of the things he taught us, and actually taught my daughter Ava, is to drink tea mindfully. And by all means, anyone listening can replace that with your beverage of choice. Um, even a delicious red wine can be more savored if we bring mindfulness to it. But we, um, as a family, we will brew a tea. We have a collection of pots we really love. We've collected and we'll, we'll brew some tea and we have it on a tray and we sit down together. We actually sit on the floor and, um, have the tray in the middle. We light a candle and we notice the tea. We smell it. We taste it. And we, um, actually, do a practice called watering each other's flowers. We only do this whole thing on Sunday nights, <laughs> but we a couple nights a week we drink tea. And that's a gratitude practice where we talk about something specific that happened this week that we appreciate about that person. And that, I cannot recommend that practice enough. I write about it in the book because that kind of allows things to reset. You know, we by telling people what you appreciate, they they feel seen and validated. Right. It, it creates connection. So so what do you tell people that 
tell you, and I, I, I'm sure being in, in teaching this in the corporate world, that tell you that all of this is like too woo-woo and out there and, yeah. you know, that's something that those people do, whoever those people are. I can't possibly do that. I mean, I know that all of the science, all of the research is, is there, but how do you kind of break down those barriers? So what I do, especially people that are performance-driven, high yeah. achievers, is um, – I don't even talk about the science. I talk about elite performers. So um, I'm a Tom Brady fan who just won the Super Bowl again. He's won more mm-hmm. Super Bowls than anyone on the planet. And, and he's, he's a, a meditator. Really good sleeper too. So, yeah. So he's our he's our well being poster <laughs> child. No child, but um, he he and his wife Giselle are meditators, mm-hmm. and it's no accident that he can perform like that under pressure. That is it it his technical football skills got him on the team his ability to directly perform under pressure is coming from his meditation and mindfulness mm-hmm. training and we're here in dc today and our beloved washington capitals won the stanley cup and right after they did i wrote a blog post on um how that team trains the mind mm-hmm. that that hockey that the the goalie in a hockey game is I found this out with research too, is one of the hardest athletic jobs on the planet because- You're uh, following this tiny little puck. <laughs> yes, that's moving like yeah. like lightning speed. Yeah. And he cannot take, he can't move his attention off. The football players every 30 seconds to 40 seconds can look around, take a breath, relax the brain, not the hockey goalie. So he actually trains and focused attention exercises to be able to do that. So it's no accident that Steve Jobs was able to have breakthrough innovation and creativity. He meditated every day. Um, it's no accident that Tom Brady keeps winning the Super Bowl. So it's meditation is a performance enhancer. Yeah, and that's what I'm committed to. I'm a, I've been in human performance and development for 30 years. So for me, it's less about stress reduction, um, although that's an amazing side benefit. For me, the story is really about optimizing performance um, in this very short life. Because I think that life is is really precious and short, and that if I can optimize my performance, my relationships, and my well-being, then why wouldn't I? And as you and I have talked about, it doesn't take a lot of time. And so I don't have to sit on the floor cross-legged to do it, do I? No. (laughs) One of the things I love talking about here and other places is that, you know, I walk in and say, okay, did you guys expect me to be dressed in white and, you know, have heart music coming out of my laptop and, and burn some incense? So you don't need any props. We can take the things that we already do and do them mindfully. And what happens is we're not only training ourselves to do one thing at a time, when I'm chopping the carrots, I'm chopping the carrots. Right. But we also get that hit of um, well-being, right? It feels better. And we have the science out of Harvard. When my mind is focused on what my body is actually doing, that's highly correlated with well- well-being. If I'm chopping the carrots and replaying a conversation I had that day, that's that if we were to look inside my, my brain, that I would, I would, you would see low level of well-being. So I'm, I can pick some things, not everything. We're not going to try to be present 100% of right. the day. But I can pick things like this meal that I'm going to cook. I'm not going to watch the news and have a conversation and participate on a conference call while I'm 
sauteing garlic and olive oil. I'm actually going to be right there. But I also want to emphasize that with training our mind to pay attention to what's positive and what's good and, um, and, and how we can show up more compassionately, we actually can amplify the joy. Mm-hmm. And that is very important to me to help people um, not only focus and generate calm on demand, but have a life that's more joyful, right. more happy, right. um, more positive. Because we Who couldn't are use like, more joy. I know. And, <laughs> and the thing is at work, we're like ripples in a pond. Yeah. We affect everyone around us. Absolutely. And if we can cultivate that way of being, we affect our, our clients and our teams and, and everyone. That's amazing. I'm so grateful Lori could be with us today. Thank you to our producers and to you, our listeners. You can find the WorkWell podcast series on Deloitte.com or you can visit various podcatchers using the keyword WorkWell, all one word, to hear more. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe so you get all of our future episodes. If you have a topic you would like to hear on the WorkWell podcast series or maybe a story you'd like to share, reach out to me on LinkedIn My profile is under the name Jennifer Fisher or on Twitter at JenFish23. We're always open to recommendations and feedback. And of course, if you like what you hear, please share, post, and like this podcast. Thank you and be well.